Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good morning, Calvary of Albuquerque. What a pleasure to be here. I Coming here as always, I feel like a kid coming home, and uh, in my heart I still have a mullet, so there you are. But a pleasure to be here with you guys. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7? John chapter 7. As Skip mentioned, uh, I, I live in Montana now. My wife and I, we moved from Southern California, where we were in ministry there, to, to Montana, and uh, and the Lord's really blessed. We had watched, you know, Skip and Linya, uh, you know, pastor this church here. And, and uh, I was born the same year this church was born. So I really grew up as this church grew up and, and, uh, and, and saw that what God could do through a church plant. So we always had it in our heart to plant a church eventually. And, and that's what we did in Montana. But um, we had friends, you know, who have, who have asked us since then, what is that like moving from, you know, Orange County, California to Whitefish, Montana? Got to be some culture shock there. And there was some adjustments, like leaving the beach and it was 70 degrees and getting to Montana, unloading our stuff from the moving truck and our Gatorades freezing in between drinks, right? Uh, that, was, that was a shock. But we, we were always asked, what is, what is it like? And so we've kind of come up with a way to tell people what, that, what that's been like. And we say that um, when we lived in California, we had season passes to Disneyland. We'd go to Disneyland whenever we wanted to. And now in Montana, we have season passes to Glacier National Park. So we've sort of traded the mouse for the moose. And that's really what that's, that's been like. But I, I moved to America's fourth largest state, Montana, knowing almost nothing about it. Uh, except what I saw in that movie in 1992, A River Runs Through It, you know, Brad Pitt, fly fishing, the simple way of life out in Montana, two brothers. And I guess I sort of expected it to be like that. Like you would, there'd be no speed limits on any roads and, and everyone would have a pet grizzly bear or something. And, uh, but it's been awesome being out there and, uh, the church has really grown up quickly and a ton of people are, are coming to know Jesus Christ at, at Fresh Life. Um, but this morning, not A River Runs Through It. I've entitled the message, A River Runs Through You. A River Runs Through You. We're going to see this morning that it is God's plan for your life, for you to just be drenched under his spiritual downpour. But it's possible, even likely, even easy as a Christian to live in a constant state of spiritual dehydration. Now, from a physical standpoint, uh, they say we need eight glasses of water a day. I don't know who's drinking this much water. I have a hard time doing that. Uh, but but, but uh, it's, it's important that we do so. Uh, and w- what they say happens is most of us are dehydrated because we wait to drink until we feel thirsty. Uh, but by the time you ever feel a thirst, your body's already been dehydrated, so you're playing catch-up at that point just to get back to zero. So what they say is you should drink regularly to avoid ever feeling thirsty. So you would be drinking as preventative maintenance. Uh, but it's difficult because then you'd have to drink when you don't feel like it. It's important though, they say your body is 75% water. I read that your brain is 85% water. So there's a lot of important stuff sloshing around up there, uh, it seems. But when it comes to our soul, our hydration is no less important. And we have to face the, the, the question this morning, could it be that I live in a state of spiritual dehydration? Could it be that any failures in, in your walk with God, any, any dryness in your devotion is directly linked to you're not getting enough spiritual water? 
Could it be that you view your spiritual life like, like many of us drink water? You wait to drink until you feel thirsty, until there's a felt need, until a problem comes along that you can't deal with. Is that when you go to the Lord? Could today you be struggling with problems that are rooted to a spiritual lack of water? If that's the case, there's a solution. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, as we open up this text, we find ourselves at the end of a feast, at the end of a party. It's no strange thing. When you look at the Bible, it seems like God loves a party. Uh, when he planned the Jewish calendar, he, he, there's all sorts of feasts and celebrations. This one mentioned is the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the three great feasts, as they called it, the other two being Passover and Pentecost. And the Jewish uh, historian Josephus re- records that this was the Jews' favorite feast of them all. It began on the 15th day of the seventh month of the year, and it lasted for seven days. And when it was over, there was a mandatory day of Sabbath rest. That just shows us that God knows what he's doing, because he knew that even after a vacation, they would need a day of rest. And isn't that the truth? You get back from a vacation, it's like you need a vacation just to get rested, to get plugged back in. It's so stressful, traveling and all. Well, the reason for this celebration was to commemorate and remember God leading the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt into the promised land through the wilderness and that God through Moses got them out and got them safely through and was able to bring them to where they needed to be. And in Leviticus 23, God told the people, celebrate this holiday so you never forget what I did. Now, it had a nickname. It was called the nickname the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Shelters because as they celebrated for this week, they were required all to build a little hut, a little tent out of palm fronds or willow boughs and you would put it on your roof of your house or in your front lawn. The city of Jerusalem's population would swell up to two million people because people from all over would come in and they would set theirs up in the town square or in their friend's lawn and they would all move into this little hut for the week. Now, you've got to imagine, as a little kid, you're like going, dude, mom, like, why do we got to live in this thing? we got like an antenna we inside. We could go and play some tennis right now. And, uh, and the mom would be able to say, or the dad would be able to say, hey, listen, our forefathers were once slaves. I mean, they were walking like an Egyptian, right? And, and God was able to bring them out of the, the land of Egypt, and he was able to sustain them in the wilderness. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes stayed fresh and new. He fed them with In-N-Out burgers that fell from the sky. It was all Stoka Boca, right? And... Uh, and he got them to the, the land of Israel. And, and you know what? Just like God took care of them, he's going to take care of us. You know that dad's had a hard time looking for a job. You know that finances are tough right now. And you know what? God's going to be faithful to meet all of our needs. It was a 3D reminder of a spiritual truth. And we have those, don't we? In communion and baptism. God doesn't just say, hey, you're forgiven. Or, hey, you know, you're redeemed. He gives us ways to put our minds around it. You know, it's like you take someone to the water and, and they go under and it's like, you know, you just think of Christ dead and buried and then come out and as you feel all that water in your skin and the, the cold wind in it, there's that newness, that freshness, right? And, and now you're raised to walk in, in newness of life with Christ. And, 
And God says, hey, you're forgiven, but listen, eat this cracker and, and drink this juice. So as you're doing that, all your 10,000 taste buds will all be sending the message to your mind, Christ paid a price for you. And, and so we have these wonderful little reminders. Well, we know it was at the end of the feast that he spoke because in verse 37, there's an embedded timestamp. It says, on the last day, and so that's of the seven, but then they give a qualification on that great day of the feast. So it was last in order, but it was greatest in importance. That could be translated on the climactic or the most important day of the feast. And that's because there was like this gradual buildup in the amount of songs they would sing each day, in the amount of sacrifices that were offered. The worship progressed, even in the amount of candlesticks they lit in the temple area. You see, uh, during this time of year, they would set up these big, giant candlesticks. And, and these would be to help them remember the divine pyrotechnics that were lighting up the sky during the wilderness wanderings. Oh, you remember the story, Exodus chapter 13. The Lord led them by day with a pillar of cloud, but by night he guided them by a pillar of fire. It was the earliest form of GPS unit imaginable. Uh, the, the fire says, turn right now, you turn right now, right? Uh, and, and they just followed in. And when the, the fire stopped or the, the cloud stopped, they would set up camp and sleep there that night. And so uh, that was God's sort of divine nightlight for them. And, uh, and, and so they lit these candles to remember the promise that God will guide his people. He'll lead us the way that he wants us to go. There were also these daily trips to the pool of Siloam, the the source of fresh water in the city of Jerusalem, to fetch these massive pails of water. And while they all paraded down to get the water, they would recite sections of scripture like the Hallel Psalms or Isaiah 12, verse 3, that says, with joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would get this water, bring it back to the altar, and they would dump it out. And as they dumped it out, they were remembering that while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, though it was a desert place, God opened up a divine drinking fountain, did he not? Uh, Moses was able to strike a rock, water gushed out, and they were able to drink from it. And they would pray that God would continue to meet their needs. But on the last day, on that great day of the feast, there would be a double portion of water they would gather. And the high priest would pull out a golden pail of water and he would collect his amount. And as they would come back into the temple, they would march around the altar seven times, remembering that God had had them march around the walled city of Jericho seven times before the walls came tumbling down. And then all the water would be dumped out as they would cry out Psalm 118, verse 25, if you're taking notes, which says, Save now, I pray, O Lord, I pray, send us now your prosperity. Saying, Lord, you you gave them water to drink, but we pray you will take care of us. Essentially, they were crying out for a Messiah, crying out for God to set things right on the earth. And it was no coincidence that on that day, as all this was going on in the background, Jesus stood up. J. Vernon McGee says he would have been standing up to his ankles in water as he cried out, verse 37, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If you're taking notes, this is Jesus' invitation. He's inviting them to drink from him, saying, listen, it's me you need and you don't even know it. You're celebrating this rock that water came out of. Friends, I am that rock. Now, it's no strange thing to refer to God as a rock. David did it. He said, Lord, you are my rock and my fortress. Jesus even called himself the chief cornerstone. But he's not just a rock symbolically. Jesus is that rock that watered the children of Israel in the wilderness. 
Paul said so in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, when he said, The ancestors in the wilderness, they all drank from the same spiritual water, for they drank from the rock that traveled with them. And Paul says, That rock was Christ. He is the one who provided, and he still is willing to provide. Now notice who's allowed to drink this water. Verse 37, he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So that's all you have to have is a thirst and you can receive from Christ. Have you ever been thirsty? Have you ever been really thirsty? It's hard when you're in that place to think about anything besides getting water. I looked up some of the symptoms of thirst on the internet and if you find it on Wikipedia, it must be true. Uh, The article said, symptoms of thirst generally become noticeable after you lose only 2% of your water volume. Initially, you'll start to experience just thirst and discomfort, possibly with the loss of appetite and dry skin. If you're an athlete, you'll suffer a loss of performance up to 30% if you've only lost 2% of your water. At this point, you'll experience flushing, low endurance, rapid heart rate, elevated body temperatures, and a rapid onset of fatigue. In moderate to severe dehydration, symptoms include an episode of visual snow, decreased blood pressure, dizziness, and fainting when standing up. Untreated, dehydration will result in delirium, unconsciousness, swelling of the tongue, and in extreme cases, even death. But good news, there's a cure. Medical science has determined the single best remedy for dehydration is drinking water. And you're going, you flew all the way from Montana just to tell us this. This is interesting. But Jesus' word for thirst in the Greek uh, carries with it the idea of a spiritual longing, a neediness, a a need for help. And that's the reality, guys, that all you need to come to Christ to have is that, a thirst. He didn't say anything about dress or conduct, looks or language, cash or morals or taste or behavior. It doesn't matter if you're tall, short, or gangly, black, white, or Asian, cultured, clueless. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're rich or poor, high or low, young or old, if you watch 24, The Office, or Lost. All you need is to come to Christ is to have a thirst, to be thirsty. The emphasis isn't on what you have, but on what you lack. And that's what Joseph Hart called upon when in 1759 he wrote these words to this hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. He's full of pity, love and power. And then he said, if you tarry until you're better, you'll never come at all. You see, you don't get your life together to come to Christ. You have a thirst, you have a problem, you have a need and you come to him. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, uh, God says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Let him who's thirsty come. Whoever desires can take the water of life freely. But question, if the supply is so abundant, the, the water so pure, the offer so free, why don't all people come to Christ and drink? And the answer is that people are all too often drinking from other wells, drinking different water. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, My people have done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked and broken cisterns that can't hold any water at all. You see here, the deal is, is that living water isn't the only water. You know that 70% of the earth's surface is covered in water? But it's not all drink of it, drinkable. In fact, only 1% of it is water that's safe to drink. The rest of it is too contaminated, polluted, or too salty for humans to safely drink. 
And spiritually speaking, it's no different. There are a lot of waters out there, but these wells are broken. The wells of money, of pleasure, of happiness, of of power, of control, of the right job, of the right car. But when we go to these broken wells, it's not as though there's a sign on them that says out of order, is there? It's not as though it says, don't drink, don't save. No, no. It's not like you see skull and crossbones on it, poison. No, no, no. You, You look at them and it's slick graphic design. They say things like Fiji, artesian spring water. Voss, right? Smart water. That's as opposed to stupid water, I guess. I, I even read that there's now a bottled water being marketed to dogs. The company is Canine Bottled Water. And it comes in two flavors, toilet bowl and fire hydrant. I'm not making this up. This is crazy. You know, but they look so great. They're so appealing. There's these wonderful pictures on the, on the bottle. But when we go to these wells... If you've ever tried to, you find that there's nothing there to satisfy. There's nothing there to quench your thirst. And that's because what was advertised on the label is a lot different from what's on the inside. You probably heard about the Aquafina controversy. Aquafina is Pepsi's water company, number two best-selling water in America. And, uh, and it was determined in court about a year ago that their, their branding was deceptive. Because on the label you have behind the logo picture of a mountain and a sun and a spring. It looks like it's some French well or something, right? When they're selling filtered tap water. And uh, so the court said you have to now print on every label PWS. That stands for Public Water Source. The funny thing is, is that last year Americans spent $2 billion on Aquafina. Who knew they were filling it up with a hose, right? And, uh, and yet when we go to these wells, we fall for what's on the label. We drink from them. We always get more than we bargained for. James 1 says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So we fall for the lie, we forsake the living water that Christ has, we go to this world's wells, we drink, and the more we drink, the thirstier we become. We're never satisfied. Ask Solomon. I mean, Solomon looked to this world, he had more resources than any of us have put together, and he looked to wine, to women, to wisdom, to wealth, to work. He poured himself into it trying to find happiness, but you know what he said? He said he was just out of reach every time. Slept with 700 women, Married 300 of them. I mean, just crazy. And, uh, and yet, yet he found that it was like trying to get a hold of the wind. Oh, think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She was married and divorced five times. And the guy she was living with when Jesus met her wasn't even her husband. You know what she was? She was addicted to infatuation. She loved the crush phase, the newness of a new relationship, a, a new guy's attention. And as soon as the goosebumps wore off, the marriage wore off. She was looking to this world to satisfy. Or we could look at stand-up comedian Artie Lang. He's a co-host on the Howard Stern Show. Rolling Stone asks, he's one of the funniest stand-up comedians in the country, a multimillionaire with a best-selling book, hordes of fans, so why can't he stop trying to kill himself? The article describes his addiction to heroin, how he goes in and out of rehab. He once tried to commit suicide with pills and whiskey. He says he's terrified of ending up like Chris Farley, who died with a lethal combination of of drugs. And yet he admits that he takes his own prescription drugs and other drugs to, quote, fill the void in his life. It seems like this goes with the territory when you look to this world. The front man for Kings of Leon, Caleb Followell, when he said he decided to be the leader of the band and told his brother he was going to be that, who had previously been the leader, he said, you play drums and I'll sing. I'll do it. 
I'll be the singer. I'll take all the girls and all the drugs. I don't want to, but I will. As though there were no choice. But is really the, the lie of drugs, sex, and rock and roll? Is it really all it's cracked up to be? I'd submit to you, no. Looking to Owen Wilson's suicide attempt, his slashed wrist. Looking to Heath Ledger's overdose, or Anna Nicole Smith, or, or Jimi Hendrix, and the list goes on. But those who are rich and famous aren't the only ones who aren't finding happiness where they're looking for it. According to the National Heart Association, among those ages 15 to 24 in America, suicide is the third leading cause of death. And it's on the rise. You have a massive amount of people just so hopeless. Why? Jesus answered that question when he said, whoever drinks of the water of this world will get thirsty again. So many are singing along with you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's why according to VH1, the number one rock song of all time is Satisfaction by the Stones. Because friends, in this world, you can't get no satisfaction. Oh, no, 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 you can't. Not in this world. But in verse 38, Jesus says, But he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus' invitation is to hydration. That's the result of believing on him. Rivers of water coming from your heart. Literally a slip and slide for your soul. That's what Jesus offers. And that's what he told the woman at the well in John 4.14. He said, if you drink the water that I'll give you, you'll never get thirsty again. But the water that I give you will become in you a fountain of living water springing up into everlasting life. Fresh life, abundant life. Does this characterize your life? Do you feel like you have this river coming out of you? Or do you feel dry and dusty, empty and frustrated? Well, how how can you know what's in your life? Well, same way you find out what's in any container. You bump it and see what spills out. When you're bumped in life, when you're jostled, interrupted, treated rudely, what comes out? Annoyance or grace? What happens if things don't go your way? Someone cuts you off on on the freeway. Does living water spill out onto them? It should. You ever go to SeaWorld with your family on vacation? You go to Shamu's Tank? You know the first 15 rows? They call that the soak zone. There's a sign that says, you sit here, you're going to get wet. That warning should be on the life of every Christian. You come encounter with me, you come across me, you bump me, you're going to get wet. We should be soaking out, spilling out, splashing out living water on people who come across us. And this this living water Jesus offers, it's not for a one-time drinking It's for a whole new way of thinking. It's for a a whole new way of life. Repeated visits back to drink again. And this constant bubbling, constant moving, constant new relationship. We're opened up to the potential of living life under God's waterfalls. Now that's not to say that there won't be times of trial. Times of difficulty. Times of dryness in our lives. We will all go through those those periods. We're virtually guaranteed that on our itineraries, there's to be trips through desert times. But even there, there's a promise of relief. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 35, verse 6 and 7, we're told the tongue of the dumb will sing, lame will leap like a deer, for waters will burst forth in the wilderness, streams will show up in the desert, the parched ground will become a pool, and the thirsty land can become springs of water. Now to a parched soul, with a, a, a spiritual thirst so severe it causes your tongue to stick to the roof of your mouth. A drink of cold, refreshing water changes everything, doesn't it? That just makes you thirsty. 
And even in times of great difficulty, even in times of great trial, even in times where it's so hard that you can barely get out of bed, God is capable of of bringing refreshment there to your soul. We see that model in the lives of so many in the Bible, don't we? Paul and, and Job, Joseph and Daniel, David and... I mean, think about David for a second. Now, you think your life's rough. I mean, David was, was mocked by his brothers. Uh, he fell deeply into sin at times. His best friend's dad tried to kill him. You, you think you have a bad relationship with your father-in-law. David's father-in-law, Saul, chased him for 10 years from cave to cave all over Israel trying to murder him. And in Psalm 63, in such a wilderness time, he wrote out, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul is thirsty for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. So even there in the wilderness, he was able to encounter these springs. And I see a threefold model for, for David's reaction. He, he drank deeply. He did so early and he didn't do it alone. He, he didn't do it alone. He drank deeply from the Lord and that was capable of turning that desert wilderness time into a, a time of refreshing. But he did so early. He says, early in the morning, I will seek you. And, uh, and, you know, there's been some controversy. When's the best time for a quiet time? Is it super spiritual to wake up early and do it then? And, and, and what I tell people when they ask me that question is, look, give God your best. When are you at your best? You a morning person? You a night owl? Give God your best. Some people, quite frankly, I see them early in the morning. I think God would tell them, go back to sleep for a few hours. You know, <laughs> come talk to me when you're in a better frame of mind, you know. And yet, regardless of when you find your primary time of digging into the word, I would say this for all of us. There's something to be said for starting your day off on the right foot. For not just charging into the day's activities without at least a, a reading of a psalm and a, a centering of your heart. You know, I, I like to have what I call my, my first cup of coffee with Jesus. My first cup of coffee of the day, I'm just kind of, you know, warming up my heart to, to spending some time with him there a little bit, waking up a bit. David did that. And then we don't do it alone. Notice he said, I will look for you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory. And that's speaking a reference to, to basically church at that time. To, to gathering together with other believers, even if it's in the back of a cave with some friends, right? And, and, and that's, that's something special that church provides. The instruction, the fellowship, the accountability, the prayer, it's so important. But it must not be your only fill-up of the week. I have encountered Christians who try and make it Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. And that's their only time where God pours into their lives. But imagine if you tried to, to live that way with water. You only had a cup of water once a week on Sunday morning. I mean, you would die. We need regular fill-ups throughout the week. That's the beauty of midweek studies, of men's ministries, women's ministries, of small group things. That's the benefit of your daily quiet time. That's the benefit of podcasts. I mean, you're, you, you want to see you know, the flesh pour out of your life, get into traffic on, on I-40, but all of a sudden you flip on a, a podcast and you're like, okay, we can do this, right? And living water can pour out on people who are a little bit rude on the road, right? And, 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 and we can find a way to practice the presence of God, bringing him into every situation. But this is a choice we must make. It's a choice we must make. And it is possible to live as a believer in a self-inflicted drought. It's even possible to be engaged in full-time ministry, but to do so in a dehydrated state. You think of the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Jesus commended them for being busy, for being ones who hated sin, who didn't tolerate bad doctrine. They were a church with a full bulletin, lots going on, but they left their first love. What happened? They stopped coming back for refills. 
I love refills. I love that in America, we have refills. God bless America for refills. You know, when you travel abroad, some countries, they don't have free refills. You find that. Now we've taken it to undue extreme lengths here because you order a medium, it's 64 ounces. You don't need to be refilling that at that point, I would, I would think. But, but I think that sometimes we forget to come back for refills. We taste that living water. We're saved like, like the Samaritan woman encountered, but we forget to get to John 7 and continue to have these rivers as a part of our life. And, uh, and we have to be able to face, look, could I be sincere in faith and works, but dry in my devotions? If so, there's a solution to the drought and it has everything to do with your relationship with the Holy Spirit. That third person of the Trinity that you've learned so much about in the past two awesome Sundays where, where Skip's been teaching on, on the Trinity. And how do you know that? Well, look at verse 39. John says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So having seen this invitation to hydration, here now is an explanation of all this. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, speaking after the fact, uh, he was able to give some commentary, some things he figured out that he didn't understand in the moment. And he basically says these rivers are the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the Christian. But he said at this point, Jesus was at, the, the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come. Why not? Well, the rock had not yet been struck. Remember in Exodus, when the children of Israel wanted to drink from the, the water in Exodus 17, uh, it didn't come out until Moses took his staff and struck the rock. And as he struck it, water came gushing out and then the people drank. But as Jesus spoke this invitation, the rock hadn't been struck yet, but he was about to be, was he not? Jesus was struck. Over and over and over again. The Gospels tell us he was, he was collected in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was beaten and chained and dragged off to, to six trials, three religious, three secular. He was stripped of his clothing. He was, he, was, he was beaten. His beard was torn out. People spit on him and hit him with rods. They pretended to worship him and, and put a crown of thorns on his head, cutting his forehead open. They, they, they whipped him with, with, uh, with, with metal and, 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 and spikes attached to the whip until the, the, his back was torn off. And then they put a robe on him, let the blood dry, and then tore the robe off. And after they had finished mocking him like a dog, like a criminal, they led him outside of the city where he was thrown onto the ground on a piece of wood called a cross, which we've glorified. We have this, this jewelry version in our mind. Uh, let me help you out here. The cross was basically an electric chair. They don't buy a new, a new electric chair every time they kill someone. Jesus' cross probably murdered hundreds of people before him and would continue to be used after him. So it was smeared with the dried blood of its previous victims. And Jesus there, his arms spread out, had spikes placed through his wrists and his feet. He was lifted up into the hole they had dug. And it, as it dropped in, all of his body weight was dropped onto, onto those new fresh wounds. And there, God the Father took every sin you'd ever committed, every sin I've ever committed, and placed it on his holy soul. And he paid in full the price of our, of our, of our transgressions. And then Jesus Christ died. And John chapter 19 tells us one of the soldiers stabbed him with a spear through his heart. The pericardium was ruptured, the watery sac that holds the heart. And water and blood gushed forth like a river of love. He was then taken down from the cross and buried. And he, and he rose from the dead because he's God, because he was sinless, because he was perfect. And then he ascended to heaven. But before he left, he told his disciples, if you wait, the Holy Spirit's coming and you will receive power from on high. And the book of Acts tells us they did just that. Those rivers poured out into their lives. And I think that is the area where all too often we miss it. Maybe you're saved. You're, you know you're going to heaven. Maybe you've taken it a step further and you're serving the Lord in some way. 
But have you waited and, 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 and allowed the Holy Spirit to come into your life and empower you in new ways? This is, this is the, one of the most important aspects of, of being a Christian, our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you encounter him in that way? How do you, like Paul says in Ephesians, how do you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the same way you got saved. You realize a need, you ask in faith, and then you receive and walk in it, uh, walk out, walk that out. You see, we forget that God always operates on an invitation only basis. I was once at a, a fair. It was a balloon fiesta, actually, as a little kid. And I saw a booth that said free candy. Now, I, I was raised on a very healthy diet. So seeing free, my mind couldn't even, free candy, they're giving it away. How can I be a part of this, right? And uh, so I asked the guy and he says, well, you can have some free candy. That's how it works. And I said, well, how much can I have? And with a twinkle in his eye, he said, well, how much can you hold? And I thought, mistake, dude, I've got pockets. I've got a lot of pockets. And, and that's the reality is I could have as much as I wanted. And that's sort of how our relationship with God is. How much, how much room are we willing to give him? You know, I have, I have two daughters, a three-year-old named Olivia and a one-year-old named Lenya. And uh, once I was putting my, my oldest daughter's shoes on, what's the deal with kids' shoes? They're like this big, but they cost the same as the rest of ours. That's crazy. Well, I was trying to put it on. I couldn't get the shoe to go on. And I'm trying real hard. I'm afraid I'm going to break her little foot. So finally, in frustration, I take the shoe off and a toy flies out of the bottom of it. She's just looking at me like, well, you're an idiot. What do you want? And uh, so I'm able to put the shoe on now. And as I was studying this message, I, that, the thought occurred to me that maybe sometimes that's why we don't encounter God in that way. We say, God, I want more of you. And he's looking at us like, well, you have a lot of things in your life right now. We have a lot of things maybe taking up the room that he wants to occupy. So the real question is, are, you want to experience God in this way? Are you willing to listen to his still small voice to speak to you? To, to, to remove the competing distractions? Are you willing, as you, as you avail yourself to the teaching of God's word, when his spirit convicts your heart, that needs to change in your life? Are you willing to listen and, and eliminate the things that are damming up the water upstream from coming down and rushing into your life? So in conclusion this morning, as a Christian, have you become accustomed to a constant state of dehydration? Is that the case? Well, listen, let the rivers flow. Come to him and drink. Go back for a repeat of visits. Allow God's Holy Spirit to move in your life. Move into the deep end. Ezekiel had a vision in Ezekiel 47. He said he saw a trickle of water coming out of the corner of the temple. And that trickle of water turned into a little creek. And the little creek turned into a little stream. And soon he was to his feet. Then he said it grew and it was to his knees. Then the water rose. It was to his hips and then his shoulders. And then he said you couldn't cross it. And then that's how our relationship and growth should be with the Lord. Two-thirds isn't enough, as Skip said last week. We need to be unsatisfied with the level we've attained and be pressing on to greater understanding, to greater levels of hydration, to experiencing more and more of God as we wait for his soon return. But maybe for some of you, you haven't left the fountain and turned to other things. Maybe you've never tasted this living water at all. I would need to ask the question of, of living water that Gatorade asks. Is it in you, right? Have you tasted it? Or are you looking to this world to satisfy because pleasure is not going to be found? So the answer for you is to come to him today for the first time and drink. And I pray that you would. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for these words, for your promises, Father. And I pray, Lord, that we uh, as, a, as a people of yours would, would come to you regularly and drink and, and practice your presence. And I pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit in our lives even now. And that we would daily, Lord, wake up and, and, and cry out for you. 
And forgive us for times where we've, we've allowed our lives to, to get dry by intentionally not drinking. And, and I pray we would remedy that, Lord, by coming to you. And Father, if any today don't know you, maybe looking like some of these people we've mentioned, looking to this world to satisfy, and, and today they need to come to you and drink, I pray they would. And even now, as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, if you want to taste these living waters, if you, when you die, want to go to heaven, if you'd like to have your sins forgiven, would you indicate that by just raising your hand up in the air so I could pray for you? By raising your hand, you're saying, I want to come to Jesus and drink. I want to give my life to him. Slip your hand up in the air. God bless you and you in the back. Anybody else? God bless you in the family room. Anybody else? God bless you over here and you in the front. All these hands. God sees your heart. Right where you're at, if you raised your hand, would you cry out to him and say, Lord, I believe. I know I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things. But will you come into my life? I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. Would you be my savior? I turn from my sins and I turn to you. Let your rivers come into my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.